come this Lord's Day again to address that subject, the God of all comforts, two weeks ago, described the very sad thing that happened, a Christian philosopher suddenly announcing that he had deconverted and no longer could call himself a Christian. He no longer has any faith and no longer believes in the deity of Christ or in salvation by His blood shed at Calvary. He still claims to be a philosophical theist. This man's reason that he gave was that when he went through a very tough personal crisis, he sought the comfort of God, but he claims God never provided him with any comfort. All this underlines the danger of elevating philosophy over God's Word and seeking a logical, rigorous knowledge of the truth about God and the gospel outside of God's true revelation, which is the Word of God. In reality, we can only know the truth about God from His divine revelation to us in His Word. No matter what philosophy may tell us, God's Word declares that God does comfort us, consoles us, and sympathizes with us in our troubles. The Old Testament promises this. In Psalm 111, the psalmist asserts the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. God's comfort and compassion and grace are seen in His mighty power and in His righteousness. He provides for us and His promises to us are sure and never ought to be forgotten. By showing His people the power of His works, He assures us that His covenant with us will never fail. He has sent redemption to us, and we ought to have a proper fear for our God. God's power prevails for His people. This is not so for the false gods who have no power and no comfort, no compassion. In Psalm 103, God's righteousness and justice is provided for the oppressed. God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger against His people. God has not treated us according to our sins, but has put away our sins from before Him and has forgiven us. God pities us like a father pities His children, for our God knows our weakness that we are but dust. Note carefully that God's comfort of us is principally seen in His forgiveness of our sins. This is observed more strongly in Isaiah 40, where God comforts His people in this, that our iniquity is pardoned by God. Judgment is passed for His people. God promises that one day the glory of the Lord will be revealed in this most important matter, and then all the world will see it. And when the Lord Jesus came into this world, Luke applies this promise of Isaiah 40 to declare that the glory that was foretold in Isaiah is now revealed to be the salvation of God by Christ. The comfort of God for us promised in the Old Testament is now disclosed in the person of His dear Son, our Savior, sent to take away our sin. The comfort of God as principally displayed by His pardoning of our sin, is even more clearly expressed in Micah 7. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity, passes by our transgressions, 
because He delights in mercy. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and cast them all into the deep sea. The greatness of God's gift to us in Jesus Christ is because our sins are very great. As lost people, we sin in everything we do. We hardly know how great our sins are, but God knows. He knows them all, and because of that, our doom is sure. The judgment must fall upon us. God's wrath against our sin will be furious, for justice must be done. And therefore, the greatest comfort we could possibly receive from God, which was promised by God in olden times, is the pardoning of our sin, the taking away of our iniquities, and therefore, taking away of God's judgment for us. Pity the poor philosopher who claimed God's comfort never came to him because he did not grasp the horror of his own sin and thereby missed the comfort of having his sin taken away. So now he rejects the very one sent by God to be his comfort for poor sinners. This poor man so learned never learnt the wisdom of old Simeon who when he held the baby Jesus in his arms proclaimed that his eyes had now seen God's salvation whom God had prepared before the face of the people. The comfort of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. How glorious that God should reveal to us that comfort in the incarnation of God the Son. Indeed, our comfort from God is embodied, literally personified in our Lord Jesus. Our sins were laid on Jesus. And in His very body, He was punished in our place by God so that we might be set free from judgment and wrath. By His very own blood shed, all who trust in Him receive forgiveness of sins. There is comfort in Christ's sacrifice at Calvary. Comfort promised by God from of old and now seen visible and manifest in His beloved Son. Now this week, we want to say a few words about the compassion of Jesus during His earthly ministry. Near the beginning of His ministry, Jesus embraced as His identity that which had been foretold of old by Isaiah the prophet, that is, the identity of the suffering servant of Messiah, of the one anointed by God, and Christ cheerfully took on Messiah's duties in Luke chapter 4. We know the passage well. Jesus goes back to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And He closed the book and He gave it again to the minister and sat down in the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on to Him. Now, I wonder if you've ever noticed in this quotation that Christ made from Isaiah that He doesn't actually speak 
of healing except for the recovering of the sight of the blind and the healing of the brokenhearted. He also proclaims the deliverance of the captives. That is, the gospel preached to the poor. That He was sent to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, which I take to be the welcome that God gives to His people to be received by Him at the hand of the Lord Jesus. These things that Jesus embraces at the beginning of His ministry are not only physical deliverance, but really ultimately are spiritual deliverance. Except for the healing of the blind, the recovering of sight of the blind, and the healing of the brokenhearted, most of these things are actual references to the freeing of people from their enslavement. Not necessarily their enslavement by wicked people. We don't have any reference in the Scriptures during Christ's ministry of Him busting people out of jail, do we? Or of people being set free from the Roman tyranny. We do have many instances of Christ healing the sick of physical illness. We have many instances of Him preaching the gospel to the poor. How do we have instances of Him setting at liberty them that are bruised? These are references in His ministry primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to spiritual healing by the preaching of the gospel. Setting people free from their sin promising them everlasting life, promising them that they would be raised again at the last day by the Lord Jesus Himself. If we compare what it says in Isaiah 61, at verse 1 it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn and appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness and planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. So here we see that these promises that Isaiah made are not primarily and not only promises of temporal healing, temporal satisfactions, temporal salvation, but notice that they involve a change in heart and of spirit. He would bind up the brokenhearted. He would preach good tidings to the meek. He would proclaim liberty to the captives. He would comfort all that mourn. He would proclaim God's accepting His people who trust in Him and call upon Him. He would give to people who had received ashes. He would give them beauty. He would give for those who were in mourning the oil of joy. He would give for them who had a spirit of heaviness the garment of praise. These are references not only to physical satisfaction and salvation, but more to the point of spiritual 
salvation and conversion. And notice that the end of this is that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Well, Israel, and not only just Israel, the whole world when Christ came could hardly be called trees of righteousness, could they? Oh no, we were all bound in sin and trespasses. There was very little to commend anybody in this whole earth, was there? Certainly it could not be said that any of us really had any righteousness, at least not of our own, not of our own selves. And the purpose of Him converting these people and as it were laying on them righteousness, making them righteous as the case might be, that they might be seen as righteous by principally by God Himself, but also that it might be seen in their lives by the people. The purpose of that was that He might be glorified. It was all for the glory of God, you see. And oh, how people gnash against that. Some people who call themselves Christian teachers actually claim that if God does things for His own glory as the ultimate end, well, that just shows He's a selfish God that doesn't love people like Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 13. They literally say that. That no, 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 it's God's purpose in all this is to help us and to beautify us and to save us. And if you say that that is for the purpose that God might be glorified, then you're twisting the Scriptures. But that's what it says right there, doesn't it? It says that the whole point of all this in the end is that the Lord's people might be recognized as righteous in the sight of God so that God might be glorified. You see, this is the change in spirit, change in heart, spiritual redemption, if you will, that Christ has embraced at the beginning of His ministry. But a lot of people didn't approve of that, did they? And the reason that the focus of these texts is not singularly or even primarily upon physical healing and physical release from prison, etc., is because all those things are likely to come back again, aren't they? If someone springs you from jail, why then maybe in five years you'll be back locked up again. Depends on whose fault it is and what sort of wickedness is, is about the place, whether it be your own or whether it be those of your persecutors. You know, we're often healed of sickness in this life and we can never say when we're well again, well, I'm glad that's behind me. It'll never happen again, can we? No, another sickness comes along. And there's no proof or reason to believe that when Christ healed the sick in His ministry that those people never got sick from anything else again. Here you have the fact that if all Christ's compassion and comfort is focused exclusively upon our temporal physical well-being, then it is an insufficient salvation that He set about to bring because troubles return, violence and oppression recur, and Messiah's ministry was about much more than temporal salvation, although it did play its part in His ministry. But rather, it is about a permanent solution to the problems of man. 
the problem of disobedience and unrighteousness in the heart of man and a conversion in that heart. Much more astounding than the physical temporal compassion of Jesus. We need to get that through our heads that the real miracle is the change of the heart that Christ works by the Holy Spirit in the lives of His people. That is more of a miracle than healing someone from cancer or springing someone from prison or lavishing on someone material blessings. The work of the Spirit in the heart to convert the heart, to regenerate the heart, to quicken the heart of lost men is a far more amazing and astounding miracle and is a far greater compassion than any temporal blessing that the Lord might bestow upon us. And you see that, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul starts to talk about the spiritual gifts. People love to get over in the weeds, don't they, about healing and tongue-talking and prophesying. But at the beginning it says, I'll have you to know, brethren, that no man saith that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. And this is true. That there is no person who can acknowledge Christ's true nature and true royalty and true power and true authority and truly that He is our Savior and Prince except by the work of the Holy Ghost. None of us can do that on our own. That's how broken we are. That's the depth of our sin. That's the depth of the depravity. And so Jesus begins with bearing man's sicknesses and sorrows, but it doesn't stop there by any means. And those are a means to an end that is to prove His bona fides, to show that He was sent by the Father, and to show that He has all power over all things. So He begins with bearing many sicknesses and sorrows. And we read this morning that text from Matthew's Gospel, the 8th chapter that we dealt with last Lord's Day. It says that He cast out the spirits with His Word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying He Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And so it is that Christ healed sick people and healed demonically possessed people and carried out this healing ministry as part of the sign ministry that He came into this world to carry out. Isaiah foretells that Jesus then proceeds after that in Isaiah 53 to bear away our sins. In the end, you see, the people don't value the miracles of Jesus. They were great for a time. But in Israel's case, in the end, they put Him to death. They delivered Him up to the Romans to be crucified. All those healings, all those raisings of people from the dead, all those wonderful miracles controlling the wind and the sea, all those things that Israel was all aware of and many, many, many people had witnessed and a large number of people had benefited from. In the end, those weren't good enough for them. They still put Him to death. 
But thereby, the plan of God to save us was carried out. They became the murderers and betrayers of the Lamb of God, offering Him up according to their wicked scheme, and certainly without any good motive in their hearts, they offered Him up by murdering Him on the cross. He was delivered by God, and the Lord Jesus delivered Himself according to His own will, and they crucified and slew Him, and He was thereby made our sacrifice to justify sinners, to bring in an everlasting righteousness in His people. And this is the final fulfillment, is it not, of the end of Isaiah 61 at verse 3. That they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. But at the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus foretells that the gospel is for all people, not just the Jewish people. He uses those examples from Old Testament history where Israel was in crisis, but the prophets provided food for some Gentile somewhere in Tyre or Sidon, healed Assyrian Naaman of leprosy, while a lot of lepers in Israel went unhealed. And this enrages his audience. He foretells that the gospel is for all people, while his people will reject it for the most part. That had been foretold. You remember it says, It is but a light thing that thou should be, the Redeemer of Israel. I will make thee a light unto the Gentile nations and the glory of thy people Israel. And in Isaiah 49, there is this lament that the people of Israel have not followed after Messiah. They have rejected Him. And here at the beginning of Christ's ministry in Luke 4, He intimates the rejection of His people. And yet with righteousness, Christ will one day usher in an idyllic eternity all over the world, won't He? Because His people after the flesh refused Him at first. And this is the consequence. This is the way that God ordained that this salvation through Christ should work itself out, should play out as it were. That His people, His own people after the flesh, would by and large reject Him as Messiah, thereby offering up God's Lamb to take away sin and to bring in righteousness for all that trust in Him, Jew and Gentile. And so thereby the plan of God to save us is carried out. He has delivered Jesus up for our sacrifice to justify sinners. And to pantomime, as it were, this outworking of the offering up of Christ by His own people in anger and hatred and wickedness, the men of Nazareth then rose up in wrath against Him and sought to cast Him over a cliff to His death. This incident of Christ preaching, declaring the gospel, warning against the rejection which Israel would soon carry out, and them being so enraged by it all that they tried to put Him to death is a tableau, if you will, of the rest of His ministry, isn't it? 
And even though it was prophesied that Jesus would be slain by and for His people, despite His marvelous healings, yet Christ continued to bless poor, helpless people, to show His compassion, and to prove His credentials, and to proclaim His gospel of forgiveness, cleansing, and saving of His people. You know, it is an astounding thing when you look at it that Christ was diligent to carry out the signs and wonders and healings and compassion for the physical sufferings of people, even though He knew and it had been foretold by the Holy Ghost through the prophets of long ago, that from a human standpoint, this was all futile. That it would not accomplish the thing that lost Israel claimed that it sought. And even that the disciples, the apostles even, hoped that it would produce. That all of this really was, if all of it was just about the physical healing of people and compassion for the helpless and the weak, if all of that was really the only point of the ministry of Christ, then there was no point to it really, no lasting point to it really at all. And this is one of the things that is so sad about people who minimize the work of Christ on the cross to take away our sin and fixate on the physical healing which they claim is promised in the Scripture. But the Lord Jesus was faithful to do all the works that His Father had commanded Him. And He did carry out these thankless, ultimately, in a national sense, they were thankless and pointless from the point of view of wicked men. These miracles of healing and of compassion and of comfort for the Lord's people. In Mark 1 at verse 40, for example, we read, There came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, saith unto him, I will be thou clean. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Think of that compassion that he had on this man. It wasn't so much that the leprosy was painful or that it was annoying or that it was anything like that. It was more the fact that because he had leprosy, he was ostracized and excluded from the community, as it were, because he was unclean. And so he couldn't easily enjoy any friendship or engage in any useful work. He was like a homeless person, but he was homeless because he bore this grievous disease in his flesh. But the Lord Jesus had compassion on him and healed him. Then in Luke's Gospel, the 8th chapter, we read of the woman who had the issue of blood. Same situation there, you see. Because she could not stop bleeding, she was rendered always unclean, and nobody could touch her. And everything she touched was rendered unclean. It was really just too much trouble or hassle to even be around the woman. Because if you did, you were constantly having to cleanse yourself, go outside the camp, wash in the special place. 
Nowadays, of course, we've institutionalized these processes with hand sanitizer and indoor showers and so forth. But back then, this was a horrible situation for this woman. And so, of course, she has faith that Jesus can heal her. And she says, if only I can touch the hem of His garment, I shall be made perfectly whole. And she went and snuck up to Him in a crowd and touched the hem of His garment. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. And the Lord Jesus, of course, knew who touched Him. But He wanted to bring out the faith of this woman and how He had healed her miraculously. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before Him. She declared unto Him before all the people for what cause she had touched Him and how she was healed immediately. And He said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. So you see, He had compassion on her. He expressed His comfort toward her. That now all of her plague had been taken away and now she was restored to civil society. And now she could go on and be with her friends and her family and not be considered a thing of disgust and uncleanness. Go in peace, He said to her. Have rest from all of this travail that has worried you for these, what, 12 years, I believe it says. The Lord Jesus showed compassion on her. Be of good comfort. And you know, in the healing of this leper and of this woman with the issue of blood, where this ceremonial pollution, you see, was healed by the Lord Jesus to comfort these people, Jesus knew that one day He would die to remove the filthiness and guilt of the sin of all of those who trust in Him. There is, you see, a defilement of sin that separates us from God, isn't there? But the Lord Jesus purchased our peace with God by His blood shed on the cross. And when He healed these people of ceremonial uncleanness, He knew that it pictured the far greater work which He was here to accomplish the healing of His people of their guiltiness and shame so that we might come into the presence of God with boldness. What does it say in Hebrews? Coming before the throne of God with boldness because of the blood of Jesus that has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. But better yet, Jesus raised dead people from the grave In Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter, there is that story of the raising of the son of the widow of Nan. He went into a city and many of the disciples went with him. Much people. And now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow and much people of the city were with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier. They that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. He that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all. And they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us and that God has visited His people. 
there is no sign in the Scripture that any of these people knew Jesus or that He had ever met any of them before in this life. And there wasn't any mention of their faith at all, was there? This was a compassion in Christ's heart towards this poor widow that urged Him or that caused Him to raise her son from the dead right there in the funeral procession. You know, this poor widow had lost her only son, so there was nobody left to take care of her. Her husband and her son, or sons, but she had only one and now he was dead, they wouldn't be there to take care of this poor woman. She was, in that sense, alone and helpless. And in that society and in those days, they didn't have retirement funds or 401ks or social security insurance. They didn't have any of that stuff. She might very well live a horrible, lonely, and destitute life because of this. And so no wonder Jesus had compassion on her. Not only was she bereaved at the loss of her son, but she stared into the abyss of great indignity, poverty, and shame. And so He did it out of compassion for her, it says. He was moved with compassion to raise up this woman's son that had died prematurely at a young age. He did it out of compassion to her. My point is that all of this compassion of Christ in the realm of physical trouble, even unto death, you see, is but the table setting, if you will, for the larger work which He had come to accomplish. It is the proof, it is the demonstration of His bona fides. It is the sign that the Jewish people demand that He is Messiah who He claims to be and that He comes with the imprimatur of God Almighty and that He has embraced the duties laid upon Messiah by the Old Testament prophets. And yet the great duty, which none of them seem to have discerned, was the duty to bear our sins in His own body on the tree to take away our guilt, to satisfy divine justice, to take our sins away, to set us free, and to bring in an everlasting righteousness and to thereby empower that great resurrection which He promised to His people where we will be changed, where all of these physical ailments and troubles and situations that so preoccupy us and so distress us will be taken away. The compassion of Christ, you see, is not piecemeal for us as it was during His earthly ministry, but it is global for us, for all who put their trust in Christ. His compassion is overflowing. It's infinite. It's eternal. And yet we've hardly begun, you see, to see with our own eyes the compassion of Christ worked out at the cross and in the resurrection. And next Lord's Day, hopefully we can continue on in this study of the God of all comforts, how Christ Jesus went through His ministry having compassion on people and seeking to help these people knowing that the people would reject Him, thereby bringing His offering for sin into play 
and into focus and into reality and thereby saving all of His people from their sin and from the judgment of it and from the doleful, baleful consequences of our sin that even now oppress us and ultimately take us down to the grave. The Lord Jesus had a sight for that long-term compassion even as He went about the land of Israel doing good and helping the oppressed, the sick, and even the dead. And at the Lord's table, we celebrate that ultimate act of compassion which the world cannot see and will not believe and does not accept. And yet, through the eye of faith, we receive it and accept it and rejoice in it. This is the compassion of Jesus that we celebrate at the Lord's table, that He laid down His life to redeem us and to rescue us. To bring about one day to wrap up in that sacrifice and in that compassion all that which brings joy and eternal bliss to His people. In the end, He will implement that global solution to the problem of sin for all His people who the Father had given to Him to be saved. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table, how the bread pictures His body that was broken for us. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us for the remission of sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You sent Your Son, Your only Son in whom You are well pleased, whom You love, whom You have always loved for eternity that You sent Him into this world incarnate in human flesh that He might partake of our sickness, of our sorrows, that He might bring in the perfection of Your people by His dying for us on the cross, that He might take away our sin, that which is the cause of all the trouble that we face in this life, that He might take it away that He might restore His creation, that He might restore His people, and that He might raise up our bodies like unto His glorious body one day at the resurrection. And we not be then subject to wrath or judgment at all, for He bore it all in His own body on the tree. We thank You for the blood that He shed. For Your Word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We thank You that the Lord Jesus suffered and died for us and laid down His life and shed His blood that we might be saved. We thank You that He has redeemed us by His blood and redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles, and that we can be gathered here this Lord's Day through the work of the Holy Spirit to rejoice in what Jesus did, to long to see Him one day with our own eyes, to be brought into that great glory and joy which 
He has promised us by His dying for us. Thank You for this cup that He left us to picture that blood that was shed to take away our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sins. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 17 in the black book. Lord Jesus Christ, we seek Thy face within the veil. We bow the knee. O let Thy glory fill the place. And bless us while we wait on Thee. We thank Thee for the precious blood that purged our sins and brought us nigh, all cleansed and sanctified to God, Thy holy name to magnify. Number 17.